Pints with Jack, Season 2, Episode 8. What is the point of Christianity? Hello everyone, welcome to Pints with Jack. This past week I was in Kansas giving some talks at a retreat, so unfortunately I didn't have much time to put together a regular episode where Matt and I are talking about a chapter of The Great Divorce. So rather than deprive you of an episode this week, I thought I'd share the audio of one of the talks that I gave at the retreat. We're just about to have Ash Wednesday and start Lent, so (laughs) I thought this would be a good penance for you. The talk was entitled, What is the Point of Christianity? Although I'm giving it in a Catholic context, as you'll hear, I'm drawing very heavily from C.S. Lewis. The talk is basically about theosis, so I hope that mere Christians everywhere will get something out of it. I already have to change my talk. It begins with good afternoon, everyone. <laughs> this, is, this is what Chris has done to me. Uh, but good morning, everyone. Something else I have to change. Hopefully by now I've met most of you. Nope, nope. Uh, No, I did get to meet some of you last night. Uh, But for those of you who have just come this morning, allow me to introduce myself. My name is David Bates. As Gentry says, I'm from England. Every American always seems to think that I'm from Australia. It's not the case. That's Matt Frad. He's different. Uh, But since I'm English, you can probably guess most of the details of my life. Uh, Growing up, naturally, I was taught to despise all hot beverages except Earl Grey tea. Uh, At school, in addition to learning how to spell colour and flavour with an extra U, and learning how to pronounce aluminium, uh, I also played sports which bewilder most Americans, things like cricket and rugby. I wasn't very good at most of them. Uh, Although I was the star player of our Quidditch team. Uh, on, on my very first game, I led our team to victory over our rival, Slytherin. <laughs> Upon completing my schooling, I was footman for uh, Lord and Lady Grantham at Downton Abbey. I later went on to work at Buckingham Palace as translator during the courtship of Prince Harry and the American actress Meghan Markle. <laughs> and naturally, I'm best friends with Hugh Grant, Colin Firth, Tom Hiddleston, and Kieran Knightley. <laughs> All right, most of that isn't true, apart from the bit about the tea, obviously, obviously. But I did grow up in England. I was raised Catholic, and after a little bit of wandering for a while, I returned to the church. And about 10 years ago, I moved to the United States, to San Diego, where I go to a Byzantine Catholic parish. If you've never encountered a Byzantine Christian before, our sacred liturgy on Sunday looks rather different from the Mass that you're used to. But we are still in full communion with the Pope of Rome. We, uh, we're still Catholic, and we're still sharing the same Eucharist. And if you want to grab me later and hear more about what it's like to be Eastern Catholic, it's one of my favorite subjects to talk about. As Gentry said, this is my second time at Skyac. Last time I was here was in 2017. I think my talks were how to get more out of the Mass and is there life before marriage? And I was really excited when I got to hear that I would have the opportunity to come back and speak to you all again. Uh, So it's a real privilege, and I love Dodge so much, even when I was landing in Garden City, uh, which is basically a field with a barn in it. It was was just, I'm back, I'm back. Now, what qualifies me to speak to you good people this morning? Well, put simply, I have a blog. (laughs) 
I have thoughts, I share them. Uh, over at restlesspilgrim.net, I write about the things that interest me. So that's usually sacred scripture, church history, evangelization, apologetics. And there you can find the audio and video of any talk that I've given. So if you weren't here in 2017 and you really are wondering if there is indeed life before marriage, you can go to my website and check it out. And not only do I have a blog, I mean, if that wasn't enough, I also have a podcast and a YouTube channel, and both of which you can find at pintswithjack.com. On the podcast with my co-host, each week, my co-host Matt and I, we read through a chapter of C.S. Lewis and discuss it. He's the author of The Chronicles of Narnia, among a whole load of other books. We do much the same thing on YouTube, except you get to see our beautiful faces as we're speaking. Needless to say, the subscription to the podcast is much higher than to the YouTube channel. <laughs> Try not to take that one personally. And it's called Pints with Jack because C.S. Lewis's nickname among his friends was Jack. And he would often be found in The Eagle and Child, the nearby pub, talking about literature and philosophy and theology. And that's what this little sticker is. This is the uh, pub sign for The Eagle and Child. And if you come and talk to me at lunch, I'll give you a free sticker. Mm, yes, now you're interested. <laughs> I wasn't going to talk to him before, but now I get a sticker. Uh, and I mentioned Pints with Jack for two reasons. The first is that I am a shameless promoter of everything I do. And you should all go and subscribe on iTunes and YouTube. Uh, but the second reason is a lot of what I'm going to share in this talk, it was taught to me by C.S. Lewis, principally from reading his seminal work, Mere Christianity. But before we go much further, let's pray. And I'd like to share a prayer of the Byzantine Church that invokes the Holy Spirit. So if you'll please join me in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, everywhere present and filling all things, treasury of blessings and giver of life, come and dwell within our hearts, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O gracious one. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So the title of this talk is, What is the Point of Christianity? Now, I think it's probably reasonably safe to assume that the majority of people here are already Christians. So that begs a couple of questions. Why would I ask such a basic question of a group of Christians? I mean, doesn't everyone know the answer? And even then, is it really worth spending an entire talk talking about this? I mean, it's kind of a simple question. So let me respond. First of all, what is the purpose of Christianity? Why do we need to ask that question? It's because it's an important question. And important questions don't have to be complicated. Sometimes they can just be really, really basic. And if we get the basic questions wrong, things just tend to compound over time. If I come to a T-junction and I take a left when I should have taken a right, chances are that the longer I keep traveling, I'm getting further away from my destination. The same thing happens with our faith. If we get the basics wrong, we'll tend to make mistakes in the way that we think about our faith and practice our faith. So because of this, it's always good to get back to some fundamentals. And I'm not sure whether you think you could actually answer that question right now, but I can at least say for myself, for the longest time, I wouldn't have known how to answer that question, despite having been raised Catholic and going to Catholic school. In fact, in some ways, I think... It's harder if you've been raised in the church sometimes because you tend to take things for granted. And that can include the answers to these basic questions such as, what is the point of Christianity? 
that was the first objection. What about the second one? Is this really worth spending an entire talk on? Honestly, yes. <laughs> I could talk about this for hours. But again, Gentry only gave me 20 minutes. So <sighs> there are some really important consequences to how we answer this question. When we understand clearly the purpose of Christianity, that impacts how we live out our faith. And unfortunately, there are a lot of answers out there that people give to this question, which are, well, they're not quite right, or at least they're inadequate in some way. They fall short. I mean, is the purpose of Christianity to go to church? Mass is important, right? Catholics nod your head, yeah. (laughs) Mass is important, so is that the purpose of Christianity? Or is the purpose of Christianity for God just to stop you having too much fun? I mean, that's basically what happened at Mount Sinai, right? Moses is there with the children of Israel, and God sees that they're having too much fun. So he calls Moses up onto the mountain and immediately sends down some tablets with a long list of thou shalt nots. Is that the purpose of Christianity? Or is it to be a nice person, to read your Bible, to care for the poor, to build a better society? Or is it simply a transaction? I pay sufficient levels of attention to God in this life, And then when I die, he lets me into heaven. Is that the purpose of Christianity? Now, I'm sure you've heard some of these answers and many others or variations of them before. But the trouble is, they miss the mark. Now, in some talks, they would spend the entire talk leading up to what is the correct answer. But I'm not going to do that because I don't have time. So I'm just going to give you the answer right now. And then we're going to spend the next 15 minutes unpacking the consequences of that. So, are you ready? I don't ask rhetorical questions. Are you ready? Yes. (laughs) All right. The purpose of Christianity is this. To be transformed into Christ, to be drawn into the very life of God, and to remain there for all eternity. To quote C.S. Lewis, this isn't a special exercise for the top class. This is the whole of Christianity. Christianity offers nothing else. This is it. And all those things that I mentioned earlier, going to Mass, reading the Bible, serving the poor, these are all good things, but they're serving an end. They're not ends in themselves. The purpose of Christianity is to be transformed into another Christ. As that means when somebody else sees you, they need to see Jesus. The point of Christianity is to be filled with the brim, with the life of God, and to remain in the Trinity's communion of love forever. Now, it's not just me making this up. This has been the answer that Catholics have given throughout the history of the church. The most pithy rendition of this was given by St. Athanasius of Alexandria. He went to the Council of Nicaea in 325. You know the creed that we say at Mass most days? It's the Nicene Creed. Well... St. Athanasius helped write that, so he's kind of a big deal. But he said these provocative words, God became man so that man could become God. Doesn't that sound kind of, you know, heretical? (laughs) I mean, doesn't that sound a bit new agey? But what he's describing in theology, it goes by a number of different names. Theosis, deification, or glorification. In this talk, I'm going to call it theosis, because in the Byzantine church, that's what we call it. 
like I say, we need to understand Athanasius correctly. He's not saying that we literally become gods. This isn't Mormonism. You don't get a planet when you die. (laughs) What he's saying is, is that the word became flesh. God became man. Jesus was incarnate in order that we might be filled with the divine life and be drawn into communion with God. And this can seem a bit heady. So what St. Athanasius did is he told us to think about mercy or goodness. True mercy and true goodness. These are divine attributes. We can only really say them about God. But we can participate in them. We can participate in mercy and goodness and therefore be called good and merciful. Or think about holiness. Holiness doesn't originate from you. Holiness comes from cooperating with grace, which is infused into your soul by God. But as a result, we can say that someone can grow in holiness. We can say that somebody is holy. That is to say, more like God. At its most basic, St. Athanasius is saying that what the Son is by nature, we can become by grace. So I said I wasn't making it up. I pointed to St. Athanasius. Well, where did he get this idea? He got this from the apostles. And I'm not going to give an exhaustive treatment here. If you would like to hear more about the scriptural basis for this, I've got to talk for you. But I'm, I do want to give a few Bible verses so that you can see that what I'm saying is rooted in sacred scripture and in the teaching of the apostles. So let's look at St. Paul, first of all. When he wrote to the Galatians, he said... I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What did I say the purpose of Christianity was? To become another Christ. To be filled to the brim with his life. St. John in his first epistle said, See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. It does not yet appear what we shall be, But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. St. John says that we've been welcomed into the family of God. We've become his children. But what we will become will be something even greater. We will be like him. So that was St. Paul, St. John, lastly St. Peter. In his second epistle, he wrote, God's divine power has granted to us all things which pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who calls us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that you may become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. He says it explicitly. What's the purpose of Christianity? To partake of the divine nature, the very life of God. So I just want to recap what we've looked at so far. I've explained why it's important that we answer the question, what is the purpose of Christianity? I looked at some of the answers that people typically give, and I've said that the correct answer is theosis. In other words, to receive the divine life, to become like Christ, and dwell with the Trinity forever. We then looked at what St. Athanasius had to say, the 4th century early church father, who summed it up by saying, God became man so that man could become God. And then we looked a little bit at the scriptural basis for this. What I want to do for the rest of the talk is to unpack the consequences of this. Because theology must always be practical. There always has to be a therefore. You learn some truth about 
humanity, about God, about life. There's a therefore. How then should we live? Our understanding of this doctrine of theosis, it should impact our understanding of happiness, holiness, sin, suffering, the sacraments, heaven, hell. And I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface here, but I hope to show you that theosis changes everything. The first major consequence is that if theosis is the purpose of Christianity, then it's also the purpose of your life. The purpose of your life is to share in the life of God. And if it's the purpose of your life, then true happiness can't be found anywhere else. With Adam and Eve, their sin was that they tried to set up on their own apart from God. Lewis in Mere Christianity goes even further. He says that the entirety of human history, you know, the terrible stories of suffering, slavery, war, poverty, it's the story of man trying to find something, anything other than God that will make him happy with inevitable consequences. And other great saints have said something very similar. St. Augustine, who inspired this T-shirt, which you can pick up for $5 at lunch. (laughs) He said, you made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts will wander restless until they rest in you. The next important consequence is that if my life is to become another Christ, then Christianity isn't just about mere improvement to become a better person. It should be about transformation. Lewis compares it to a tin soldier, a little toy tin soldier, becoming alive, being turned into flesh. That's the kind of change that Christianity should bring about in our lives. Those of you who have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, have the image in your mind of Aslan coming to the White Witch's house and breathing on the statues, the stone statues, and bringing them to life again. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. Lewis loved another theologian called George MacDonald, and he told this parable. He said, imagine that you're a house, and God comes in to rebuild it. At first, it's okay. You see what he's doing. He's fixing the leaky roof. He's mending the broken floorboards. But after he's done that, he starts knocking the house about terribly. It hurts. You don't know what he's doing. He's digging holes and knocking down walls. McDonald says he's building a very different kind of house than the one that you were thinking. He said, you were content just to be a nice cottage. He says, God is building a palace. You might even say a temple because he intends to come and live in it himself. St. Paul calls us temples of the Holy Spirit. That means God is going to want to do some work on you. Now, if we're going to have this kind of transformation, we're going to need some help. We need to get connected to that divine life. And when looking at this, Lewis compares this supernatural life that we need with our natural life, biological life that we receive from our parents. And he points out that the life we receive from our parents is a gift. There's nothing we earned, and it, was, it wasn't a life that we could have made for ourselves. However, we do have to protect it. Because it will slip away otherwise. We must feed and nurture and protect ourselves. And he says it's the same in the spiritual life. We receive our natural life from our parents as a gift. We receive the sacraments as gift. We're receiving something that we could never have earned. 
And once again, if we don't sustain this life, if we don't feed, protect, and nurture it, that supernatural life that we receive will wither and die. And while the sacraments aren't the only means through which God transmits his life, they are the principal means we have been given. God became man so that man could become God. Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and life in abundance. Jesus instituted the sacraments so that we could share in his life. And there's a consequence to this. This means that we don't go to Mass just simply to get our ticket punched, you know, check it off, gave God his due this week. We go to receive God's life poured out for us in the form of bread and wine. And this also means that we don't just go to confession once a year because canon law says we have to. We go regularly to receive forgiveness for our sins, to receive the grace that we need for the journey ahead and to give us new life as we try and imitate Christ. However, not only do we have to receive this divine life, we have to rid ourselves of anything that would damage it, hurt it, choke the life out of it. In the back of your mind, have the parable of the sower here, the seed that grows up and all the weeds choke it. Theosis is all about the transformation of who I am to who God calls me to be. But this isn't the only kind of transformation that can take place. Rather than just accepting God's life, I can reject it. And rather than being transformed into Jesus, I can reject that and be transformed into a different kind of person. If other people are meant to see Jesus when they see me, then that means I can't commit sin. I can't negotiate with it. I can't even flirt with it. Lewis suggested that when Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, what he was saying was that if you invite me in, I'm not going to give up on you until you are perfect. If you don't resist me, I'm going to replicate myself in you. And that means that we can't hold back part of ourselves. We can't say that we're going to give ourselves to God, except this little bit here, this, this, this little bit of sin I want to hang on to. My favorite book the Lewis wrote is The Great Divorce, and we're going through it on the podcast at the moment. Please subscribe. Um, but in the book, he imagines souls coming to heaven, coming to the very gates of heaven, and time and again, they turn away. They go to hell instead of their own volition because they want heaven, but they want it on their own terms because they want to take in with them their souvenirs of hell, their sin. They're not willing to let it go. Theosis also changes our understanding of suffering. If the Holy Spirit is trying to reproduce the life of Christ in me, all of the mysteries of his life Sometimes it might be a sorrowful mystery that the Holy Spirit wants to reproduce in my life. And that can be tough. But it's also the means by which I get conformed to Christ. This also changes our view of salvation. Christianity isn't just about keeping a set of rules. And if we keep the rules well enough, then we're allowed into heaven. Lewis describes it in terms of heavenly and hellish creatures. He says that every time you make a choice... That, that part of you deep inside, if your heart, your soul, the central part of who you are, you are turning it one way or the other, either towards God or away from God. And over the course of your life, you're going to make innumerable number of choices. And he says that what that's going to do 
is it's going to transform you into a creature that's turned towards God or away from God, into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. He says that either you're going to turn into a creature that's in harmony with God, with its fellow creatures, and with itself, or into a creature that's at war with God, with war with its fellow creatures, and at war within yourself. And in that light, do heaven and hell now make sense? What we're doing is we're preparing ourselves for our final destination. Either we've been saying yes to God in our small decisions and being transformed into a heavenly creature, or we've been rejecting it. So heaven or hell will ultimately get what we desire, the life of God or the absence of the life of God. And this also changes the way that we view our neighbors. Every single person here will live forever. Do you ever think about that? The people that you're sitting next to, they have the possibility of being either a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. And this is part of the reason we evangelize, to share the life which we have received with others. And Lewis says that in doing this, Christianity spreads like a good infection across humanity. And he points out that every day we are helping our neighbors become one of those two kinds of creatures. Every day, the people that you interact with, you are helping them transform either into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. And because each person is immortal, Lewis says that next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Do you ever think that? He says if he's your Christian neighbor, he's holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ, glory himself, is truly hidden. Catholics are really good at being able to see Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. How good are we at being able to see Jesus in our neighbor? My time is just about up, but I hope that I've helped you see Christianity with fresh eyes. To understand it in terms of theosis, about transforming our lives as we share in God's grace. God became incarnate to share his very life with us. And we have the opportunity to receive this life and nurture it in the sacraments. And we have the opportunity here on earth to spend our time imitating Christ in every small action to be transformed into either a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. I just want to end with a quotation from Pope Francis. He wrote an apostolic exhortation on holiness, and it really sums up everything I've been trying to say. Pope Francis says, A Christian cannot think of his or her mission on earth without thinking of it as a path of holiness. Each saint has a mission, planned by the Father, to reflect and embody a certain aspect of the gospel. At its core, holiness is experiencing in union with Christ the mysteries of his life, constantly dying and rising with him. Christ enables us to live in him as he himself lived, and he lives it in us. Ascend in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, you've always desired to live in communion of love with us, your creation. Yet at almost every step, we've resisted you, choosing our own way instead of yours. Lord Jesus, you came to heal us and draw us back to the Father. You, God, became man so that man could become God. You poured out your life on us so that rather than just being mere creatures, we could become God's children. You offered your life on the cross. You founded the church. You instituted the life-giving sacraments. 
so that we could receive your life and find strength on the journey that is before us. Holy Spirit, come and make your dwelling place in us. Fill every fiber of our being and transform us from the inside out. Burn away our sins, enlighten our souls, and brighten our understanding. Sanctify us, giving us a faith that cannot be confounded, a love that does not pretend, a wisdom that overflows, that we may live no longer for ourselves but for you. And having spent our earthly lives in the hope of life without end, grant us eternal rest, where the rejoicing of heaven never ceases, and those who gaze upon your face, their delight cannot be expressed. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to be around all day, so feel free to come and ask me questions there. But is there anything that I can clarify before I hand over to Gentry? It was a perfect talk. I knew it. Excellent. (laughs) Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that talk. I'm going to be in Los Angeles this weekend giving a longer version of it. So I'd appreciate your prayers if you could spare me a thought. As always, please feel free to contact us through restlesspilgrim.net, pintswithjack.com, as well as on Twitter and Instagram at pintswithjack. In the next episode, Matt and I will be discussing Chapter 6 of The Great Divorce, where we're going to be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.